Welcome, everyone. This topic of building blocks came up and it reminded me of my childhood. I was the oldest of two, so I could remember at five or six years old playing buckets of Lincoln Logs. Maybe you remember those. Anyway, I remember having three or four of these round buckets, and I would build two separate camps on opposite sides of my room. For each of these quote-unquote fortresses I would build, it would have a tall wall, and behind the wall, basically in the compound of the fortress, would be some strategically placed little green army men. Back in the day, you could get bags of that stuff for like two bucks. After the building was done, I would have five quarters in my hand, go to the opposite corner of one of the fortresses, and without looking over the top of the wall, I would toss a quarter one by one till all five were tossed, with the goal of knocking over the little green army men. Then I would check the destruction that my tossing skills caused, collect the quarters, go to the opposite side of the room, and do the same thing to the second fortress. I would repeat this over and over till one of the fortresses had all of the little men knocked over. What does this have to do with the episode today? Absolutely nothing. Just shows you how sad my childhood was. I was obviously a lonely kid with no friends. This week, we are talking building blocks on Growing Up Rock. Now, crank it up. G.I. Joe, what's going on there, buddy? And here is G.I. Joe with Kung Fu Grip. G.I. Joe has hands that grip. Fingers you hold open and let close. Hands that hold on with a Kung Fu Grip. The grip you help Joe use in self-defense. G.I. Joe with Kung Fu Grip. The hands that grip. Did you follow that story at all? Did I confuse you? Yeah, of course I followed it. But you do know that we're not talking about building blocks uh, with Lincoln logs and shit like that and Green Army men. You know, we're talking about the building blocks of rock, for God's sakes. Do Lincoln logs still exist? I didn't buy my kids any, so I don't know if they still exist. I'm guessing they do, but truthfully, I don't know. I don't have kids, so, you know. But I do know that G.I. Joe exists, and God dang it, I used to have one of those. It had Kung Fu grip and everything. Oh, good Lord, that's the Eddie Murphy thing. (laughs) No, it's a real (laughs) thing. (laughs) It's completely real. (laughs) Yeah. My parents didn't believe allowing a TV in the kid's bedroom. Yep. So, you know, as a kid, you just, I was an only child for seven years. So you're kind of letting your fantasies kind of build whatever you're playing in the room. Right. And I had a lot of ca- little cars, a lot of racetracks, had all that kind of stuff because I didn't have a TV in my room. Now, like each of the kids have their own iPad, blah, blah, like they can do whatever the hell they want. But back then, you didn't have those choices. Yeah. Just to let you know, we got a tremendous amount of feedback on the episode you did with your brother, Danny, so much so that I'm currently under negotiations to go ahead and bring Danny on to replace you on the show. And I want to let you know that live right here on the podcast. Bitch, please, I'm going to show you. Yeah, no problem. That'll last like about three weeks. (laughs) 
No, that was a great episode. I enjoyed that episode immensely, and uh, apparently a lot of other people did too. So uh, that was fun. That was a fun trip. Yeah, he did uh, extremely well. Uh, what I didn't tell everybody when I edited the episode, really all I gave him were songs to listen to, and that's about it. He did not know any of the questions I was going to ask him. He did not know how the podcast was going to be structured. He just kind of went with it. So not bad for on the fly. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. So today's episode is all about the building blocks of rock. But let's talk about the elephant in the room real quick. As we're recording this less than, what, three, four hours ago, you texted me and said, hey, I think Eddie Van Halen passed away. Sure enough, the news is out. Eddie Van Halen passed away. That was a huge thing to me. I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of details of what that means to me. I'm sure it means a lot to a lot of people. And normally here at Grown Up Rock, we don't necessarily do tribute episodes. But I think probably somewhere down the road, no time real soon, we'll approach it because of how important his music was to me personally growing up. So that's part of the reason I'm into rock and roll these days. And the first concert I saw, anybody that listens to podcast knows the story. I did want to just kind of mention that. And hey, 2020, it just keeps getting better, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm similar. I'm not a guy that puts on Twitter, hey, breaking news, blah, blah, blah. You know, I do that more for somebody releasing an album or re releasing a video versus somebody passing. I usually don't put anything on Facebook. I might comment on somebody else's post for a quick second. The text chats have been going nuts today about this. My, my daughter texted me and said, did you hear about Eddie Van Halen? Like, so I get it. And similar to what we did with Prince, when Prince passed away, we waited two years before we did some sort of tribute episode. And by the time you're hearing this, it's going to be old news, almost two, two and a half weeks. Yeah. You know, icons gone. It sucks too young, but it is what it is. Yeah, exactly. So I just wanted to go ahead and mention that because I feel like it's like a 50 pound, 500 pound elephant in the room, you know, whatever. I don't know. There's not 50 pound elephants, dude. I think when they're born, they're like 500 pounds. Yeah, but you know me in math. So my <laughs> 50 pounds is probably 500 tons. If I figure it out, I weigh about 25 pounds, which makes it about 20 tons. So there you go. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? But listen, let's get on with this show because this show, in a way, sort of ties on to one of the things that just happened, which is these great artists are passing away. The older they get, the more they pass away. And pretty soon, the younger generation, these are all going to be just memories. They're not going to know people. So the question is, you know, if you've got a 16-year-old kid or a 15-year-old kid, whatever, what records do you hand this individual and say, hey, these are the building blocks of rock and roll and whatever that means to you? We're going to get more into this, but you know we got to start out with this. It's time for the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. All right, so tonight's Crank It Up Spotlight comes to us from 
Sonny Hollywood Poonies man crush Jeff Scott Soto. He's got an upcoming album coming out called Wide Awake in My Dreamland, uh, released on November 6th on Frontiers Records, so a couple of weeks away if you're listening to this when it was released. And this is a song written by Alessandro Del Vecchio and Jeff Scott Soto. Here's Love's Blind.
Yeah, that's pretty much what Jeff does solo. That song is right in the bang zone of what he's put out the last four or five albums that are considered his solo albums and not Soto or something else, uh, which is great. This new album is going to have 11 tracks on it. Alessandro Del Vecchio is playing bass. He's playing the keyboards, playing guitars, doing the backing vocals. There's a guy named Fabrizio that's also playing guitar, some Italian guy I've not heard before. The person on drums is Idu Cominato. He's been in Jeff's band for a while now. And then, of course, Jeff is doing vocals. So it should be right in line with what Jeff has done on the seven solo albums. And I think the CD is going to come with a bonus CD that's live that's got basically his, God, I would say staple songs. He doesn't really have any hit songs, but like stand-ups done with Dino. Right. So that's going to come out great, I guess, on the live album. So should be a good little release. And I'm glad he's releasing something. Yeah. And I think if you like that record, which I personally do, I like that song quite a bit. You're going to like the record because I got an advanced copy of the record to stream today. And I just I quickly went through it and it's right along the same lines as the single. And so I think people are going to dig it. So there you go. Alrighty, so this topic, this building blocks a rocket, think the thought process like you shared was what albums do you hand a kid that said, look, here is the history book on hard rock and metal, who influenced who, where it started, blah, blah, blah. I think you're dead on about if you don't somehow pass this knowledge to the next generation, then it could be lost. Because for me personally, My dad wasn't into Elvis. My dad wasn't into the Yardbirds. My dad wasn't into the Doors. So I don't really know a lot about those bands except for the Doors because I kind of got into them. Mm -hmm. But they're just old bands to me that some of the people probably died off and some are probably around and I don't know. I'm not into the Stones that much. I'm not into the Beatles that much because it was the couple of generations before me, it felt like. Well, I'm assuming my grandson's going to feel the exact same way if we don't do something, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, rock is kind of all over the place. And I look at this podcast and other podcasts as sort of almost a piece of history caught in time. Whether you know you're covering the top ten hair metal albums or you're covering, you know, songs from the nineteen eighty five, whatever the topic is. I feel like whenever we put an episode out, there's a small piece of learning that goes along with that to somebody who's not familiar with rock and roll, you know? Yeah. And we had made a conscious effort to say, look, we're just going to talk about the history, whether we are really super into the band or album or not. So like the nine albums I'm talking about, there's really only four of them I listen to on the norm. And then the other five I listen to every once in a while, and it's just a few songs, but they are a part of history that's important. Yeah, we could have picked any number of records that could be considered 
influential. I mean, over the course of time, we stuck to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and we basically said you can pick three albums from the 70s, three albums from the 80s, three albums from the 90s, but you can't pick the same band more than once, and you can't pick the same year of release from more than one year, correct? Yeah, I cheated a little bit when we added the bonus thing to it, but yes. Yes, that's true. We did add a little bit of a bonus, and we'll talk about that a little bit later as to why I thought we needed to add it, and it's not part of the year thing, uh, so that's fine, uh, and we'll get into that a little bit later on. But you want to kick us off and how you approach this and your first uh, your first three from the 70s? Yeah, so how I approached it, I went and said, all right, what are the genres of music that are maybe some of the most popular and go backwards and get an idea of the trigger that takes it to the next level. So the seventies and eighties and nineties albums I picked maybe didn't start that genre, sometimes maybe credited for that, but maybe didn't start it, but definitely took it to the next level to where it became more important and more common uh, than it was before the album came out. So my first album, and I'll share my all three of my 70s here, my first album is Deep Purple in Rock from 1970. So this was Deep Purple's fourth album, and the lineup at this point is Ian Gillian, no, not Ray Gillian's dad, uh, Richie Blackmore. <laughs> <laughs> I had to throw that in there. Fair. <laughs> Richie Blackmore, Roger Glover, John Lord, Ian Pace. So the band, because this is their fourth album, they haven't quite refined their sound until this fourth album comes out. And Blackmore had just heard the first Led Zeppelin album and he wanted to go in a heavier direction. So they had the singer, Rod Evans, that wasn't a great fit for the new direction. So they enlist Ian Gillian from the band called Episode Six and they kind of get started. I'll tell you in reading stuff, Queen, Metallica, Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, Alice in Chains, Europe, hell, Eddie Van Halen, Lemmy, they've all mentioned Deep Purple as, as either the band or the sound that was a major influence of what they did. Never mind that Whitesnake probably doesn't exist without Purple and maybe we have a different Ingve, right? I'm not normally into 10-minute songs like Child in Time on this album, but you can also probably credit Deep Purple for allowing it to be okay for rock bands to become jam bands too. Because the live versions of all these Deep Purple songs, including this album, were always different. And I think people loved hearing different aspects of the same song on a live album and just these musicians going off on the fly. For this album, I think Speed King is probably my favorite song on the album. It kicks your ass immediately by being the opening track. The rest of Deep Purple, just in general, is hit and miss for me. I'm glad it created Whitesnake, but Deep Purple is definitely not in my top 20, 25 bands for, by any means. But this album is the first time you hear that Deep Purple sound that people talk about. Next, going to Richie Blackmore's Rainbow from 1975, the first album. So... 1974 rolls around, four years after the In Rock album, and now Deep Purple has both Glenn Hughes and David Coverdale because Ian and Richie were getting in fights all the time, so Ian quits. And Blackmore isn't happy with the music they're doing because it's becoming like almost too bluesy, and it's got this now hint of like soul and funk. 
He used to call it shoeshine music. That sounds a little racist to me. I don't exactly know what that means, <laughs> but I'm going to leave it at that. Like he's said that in several different places, quoted. I don't believe you people. Huh? What do you mean, you people? What do you mean, you people? Huh? I, I think what uh, Tug oh, means is you no, people. No, look at his ass, man. You people. Look at that beady. What are you talking to me? I got to get back to the Now, let's go get those Viet Congs. Viet Cong. What? It's Viet Cong. There's no S. It's already plural. You wouldn't say Chinesees. Yeah, that's uh, that definitely sounds racist to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm going to leave that alone. So Richie bows out of Deep Purple and grabs Ronnie James Dio from ALF and start over, right? What a way to start over. You can argue that this album started all that Dungeons and Dragons metal everybody talks about, right? The riffs get grittier, the singing gets a little more opera, and this magic gets created. Like my favorite song on the sound, Man on the Silver Mountain, good Lord, you would have no idea that's from 1975, because it feels like everything you were listening to in the mid-80s from the Ingves of the world and the Dio's of the world. But this was 10 years before that.
uh, this album, Richie Blackmore's Rainbows, a lot more straight ahead rock versus some of the purple stuff. It's got shorter songs. In the end, Deep Purple was done two years, or not even two years, hell, a year and a half after Blackmore leaves. So we can say that they couldn't have survived without Blackmore. They come back later on, but it was 1984 before they came back. And if you believe like we do that your high school years are probably the most important years of your musical influence, you can say that Deep Purple influenced one generation and then Rainbow influenced the next generation, right? So pretty cool that Blackmore is uh, on both lists there. And then my third one is Alice Cooper, Love It to Death, 1971. I'll tell you right now, I like two songs on this album and that's it, right? I, it's a hard <laughs> listen for me. But after the first two albums being mostly psychedelic, the band moved to Detroit, enlists Bob Ezrin, and gets influenced because I guess Detroit had this crazy rock scene happening. Then this being their third album, they finally get to the sound that they're known for, right? I'm 18 gets released, which shows Alice and Bob that they can actually be on the radio and get a hit out of it. And then this was the first tour where Alice started doing the shock rock types theatrics during the live show. So you could say you have no kiss, you have no wasp, you have no Marilyn Manson, you have no Rob Zombie. Uh, if this album doesn't kind of get shock rock started, Caught in a Dream and I'm 18 are the only songs I can basically listen to on this album. Honestly, a lot of Alice is hit and miss for me. I think that's true for both of us, mm -hmm. but there's no denying that this album and that song, I'm 18, probably saved Alice's career. Otherwise, we have no idea if he becomes a golfer or if he stays in music, but instead started this shock rock genre that has become crazy. I mean, you could say in this moment doesn't exist if Alice Cooper doesn't do what he's doing. So some pretty cool 70s albums. What do you think? Yeah, I love it. I love the Deep Purple, and I should tell people we shared – our albums ahead of time of what we were picking so that we didn't end up kind of crossing paths and picking the same stuff. And so I went in a completely different direction, even though I a hundred percent agree with the deep purple, deep purple needs to be in there in some way, shape or form. Let me ask you this, Alice Cooper, do you feel like he influenced somebody from a musical standpoint or more just the show? I think it was more the show. I think the the melody has to be there, and I'm 18's kind of got that sludgy melody mm -hmm. that that's kind of part psychedelic rock and then part hard rock. Right. But it's the theatrics that put them over the top. Like, even with Wasp, when they first came out, you didn't hear about the music. You heard about he was throwing raw meat into the crowd. Right. Right? So there there is a thing about shock rock that gets you in love with that first. I can't name one. Well, I can name one in this moment song, and but I can't recite the lyrics of that song. Now, if I think about it, I can probably name five. I've seen them live six times. They're amazing live. Mm -hmm. And I don't know jack about their music. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sort of there with you. I agree with uh, everything you just said. All right, so we're going to go on to my first three from the 70s. And I kind of want it to touch on a few different places, which is sort of what I ended up doing. I have to say all the stuff that I'm passing on to somebody is building blocks of rock, quote unquote, are all records that I think are fantastic. I'm not putting something out here that I don't listen to myself or think is really, really a, a strong record. And so that's it just it worked out that way. It wasn't that I wasn't willing to pick something. I just kind of 
I looked at the bands that I thought needed to be featured as something I would hand over to a young kid. Then I just went through the years to see which records came out when. So I'm going to start with Led Zeppelin because I think nobody would argue the fact that Led Zeppelin was ridiculously influential to all the great bands, a lot of great bands over the years. And Led Zeppelin was a band that I really didn't love early on. When I was coming up in the 80s and getting into Van Halen and ACDC and bands like that, I didn't love it, uh, Led Zeppelin. Really, all I knew was what classic rock radio stations were playing. But in 1971, Led Zeppelin released Led Zeppelin 4. And you can go to a lot of different Led Zeppelin records and probably find a record that is influential, whether it's Houses of the Holy or Physical Graffiti or Led Zeppelin 3. I mean, every one of the Led Zeppelin records have pretty much classic songs. But Led Zeppelin 4, I mean, Black Dog, Rock and Roll, Stairway to Heaven, Misty Mountain Hop, Going to California, When the Levee Breaks, The Battle of Evermore. I don't know if you've ever heard Hart do their rendition of the Battle of Evermore, but it's fantastic. I mean, it is really, really good. And so to me, that's a necessity to have Led Zeppelin in your stack of music that you're going to hand somebody as building blocks of rock. Number two for me is Rush. I know it's not a fan favorite for, for my friend Hollywood there, but 2112 was such a complete album and really, to me, it was a, a turning point for Rush because they said after the albums they put out, they were basically on the cusp of being dropped by the label. And it was 2112 that allowed Rush to basically gain creative control of their careers from that point on. And when you listen to that record, it could be said that that record kind of started a concept album genre in itself. Not that I don't think bands like maybe Yes or Genesis put out a concept record before 2112, but I think 2112 to us rockers is part of that concept package. And it's just a fantastic album from start to finish. Really, really good. Highly recommend people listen to that with their headphones because it is absolutely a sonic journey with that record and headphones. Right. 
brings me to Van Halen's self-titled record. This was on the list before what happened today with Edward. It was going to be on the list no matter how I put it because it's pretty well known that rock in America in 1978 wasn't really strong. Aerosmith was kind of on their way out. Kiss was kind of on their way out. A lot of bands were coming down and rock wasn't real strong at that point. But Van Halen released this self-titled album in 78 and people heard Edward playing for the first time and it blew people's minds. You listen to that album today and it's amazing that that thing came out in 1978. That thing created and influenced a whole slew of guitar players, past and present. It's just amazing how that album has influenced people over the course of time. And so that had to make my list as well. So for the 1970s, I would absolutely hand those three albums over to a kid and say, start with the 70s, and I would be okay with that. Now, before we go over to the 80s, I texted Sonny earlier today and I said, listen, my list is primarily made up of all male rock bands. And being that we just put out an episode several weeks back about women who rock, I wanted to make sure that we covered the influential women in rock and pick a couple of records from the 70s or 80s and then one from the current time, so the 2000s. So we each picked two records from female artists that you would hand over to somebody and say, listen, girls know how to rock as well. So the first album I'm going to feature just happens to come from 1975, which is why it's part of my 70s, and it's Dreamboat Annie from Heart. This is a fantastic record. Starts out with Magic Man. It's got Crazy on You as well. It's a really, really solid record. So I would hand that over as part of my building blocks of rock. Yeah, so those four, uh, I'll do Zeppelin last. I'll just go uh, bottom to top here. So the Heart album... You know, when I got into Heart, it was the mid-80s, right? So I'm going backwards, and people were talking about all these albums they put in the past. This album, like, I like three songs of it. The rest of it's a little too weird. So I don't remember where I found, like, a Heart Greatest Hits, but there was something that had, like, Crazy on You, Magic Man, Barracuda, and a couple others. I'm like, yeah, this is my bang zone right here. I don't know about all that weird stuff that they do, because I could have swore I heard, like, bagpipes and stuff in some of this stuff. I was like, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> So that was a little weird. Uh, Van Halen, there's no denying. Yes, I am more of a Van Hagar fan. I always will be. But this first album is unbelievable. There's no doubt. Rush, I can't do it. I, I just can't do it. I, I tried. <laughs> I can't do it. I don't understand. But all the bands that they influenced, I really can't do either. Yeah. So at least it's consistent the whole way through. Yeah. <laughs> right?
Let's get this party started. And a one, and a two, and a one, two, three. Oh, one, two, three. And then Zeppelin, it, it's weird. I was thinking about what got me into Zeppelin because I'm coming in the mid-80s and Zeppelin's not dead, but nobody's talking about Zeppelin. And then I remember it was two singers that both mentioned Zeppelin like in a matter of like two or three weeks somehow. So I'm watching Headbangers Ball. Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons are doing Headbangers Ball like in the late 80s or whatever. And they start talking about who influenced them, blah, blah, blah. And Paul starts talking about Zeppelin. Like, who the hell is Led Zeppelin? Zeppelin is back. Digitally remastered. Jimmy Page has returned to the studio and digitally remastered all the classic tracks from Led Zeppelin. The greatest rock and roll band ever. This boxed set is available now at your local music store on CDs or cassettes. And now, Time Warner offers you an exclusive two-CD version of the Led Zeppelin remasters through this limited TV offer. It's 26 songs, more than two hours of classic rock and roll, and it's available now over the phone for four easy payments. Call this number and get Led Zeppelin as you've never heard them before. And it's not available in any store. And if you order now, you'll also get this free 30-minute interview with Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, and John Paul Jones. We first played together in a small room in Gerrard Street. The element of risk was the great thing about it. Call now to get this exclusive TV offer. Two remastered CDs or cassettes, plus the free interviews delivered to your home. This offer won't last long, so write this number down and call now. Now, it's already the late, late 80s at this point, maybe even early 90s. Yeah. But I'm only 20, 21, right? So I, I don't really know. And I've only been in music five, six years. And in the high school, in the mid-80s, in San Francisco, nobody was talking about Led Zeppelin, right? So you just don't know. So I'm like, oh, whatever. And then Miljenko Matijevich is a huge Led Zeppelin fan. So when the first album came out, I go to see them live a couple of weeks later. And he says Led Zeppelin is one of his favorite bands. And they start doing communication breakdown. I'm like, well, that's a Led Zeppelin song. I've never heard one. That's interesting. <laughs> right. And then I started going backwards. And the only thing I own by Zeppelin is that four disc thing from 1990 that has all the hits and all the songs on it. I don't know if it's all the songs they have, but it's all the songs I want to hear really. So that's the only thing I own by Zeppelin. That's how I got into them. 
And then you heard Greta Van Fleet on the radio and said, I thought Zeppelin wasn't putting out any new music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Take us to the 80s, baby. Okay. So for the 80s, I started with Maiden. So Power Slave 1984. By this time, we're at Maiden's fifth album. They've had several lineup changes, but this is the second record in a row now where to me, I call it the perfect and classic lineup, which is Dickinson, Dave Murray, Adrian Smith, Steve Harris, Nico McBrain. The album's a great mix of like the talent the band has and the songwriting is a good balance of like new wave of British heavy metal riffs, probably a little more prog than punk and catchy vocal melodies. So the two songs that are my favorite on the album are Aces High, Two Minutes to Midnight. They are Maiden staples. There's no doubt. And before Iron Maiden, heavy metal was pretty much centered around the blues. But Iron Maiden seems like they sped up punk a little and threw in a little bit of a complexity of like a progressive rock. Combine that with a little bit of blues and you got this roadmap for bands like Metallica and Anthrax who absolutely love Iron Maiden. They ended up evolving to a different genre that influenced the next generation, right? And one of the things that Maiden did for me anyway, they showed rockers that smart lyrics and themes work versus singing about logs and fireplaces, whatever the hell else you want to think about. <laughs> And literally started teaching history to fans, right? Like I was telling my son about, do you know about the flight of Icarus? He goes, how the hell do you know that? And he's a history buff. And I'm like, I listen to Iron Maiden music. That's how I know. <laughs> Were you trying to translate the hieroglyphics on the Power Slave record? No, no, I was never that good. <laughs> my second one from the 80s I picked was Y&T or Shaker from 1981. So we're at Y&T's third album, original lineup, Dave Manichetti, Phil Kenamore, Joey Alves, Leonard Hayes. This was the first album where they used the new Y&T name that used to be called Yesterday and Today, and it's the sound that they would become known for. Those first two albums is not exactly gritty rock. Some of it's a little bit of a tough listen, but this sound on uh, whether it's Hurricane, whether it's I Believe in You, whether it's Rescue Me, this is the sound that they got known for. Now, I get it. Y&T isn't usually a band that's mentioned as a major influence in hard rock by the masses. But if you grew up in the Bay Area or if you've ever been on a Monsters of Rock cruise, you'll understand what I'm talking about. On the cruise, Y&T is the band where all the musicians are. Other bands plan what they do on the cruise, get pissed off that their show's going to be late because they're going to miss Y&T if they got to be on stage and play in front of fans. And I'll tell you, in the early 80s, Y&T's live energy was the everything that the L.A. scene bands were trying to emulate. And when they play like deep cuts, like Dirty Girl off this thing, it drives a crowd crazy. Even Ozzy saw something in Manichetti. That's why I was begging him to be in the band. I am so glad that didn't happen because we wouldn't have got all the Y&T music we got. So I get it. They're not Led Zeppelin. But to the folks that grew up in California and were the musicians in California, Y&T, I can say, was almost as important as Van Halen to influence some of those bands in the clubs. Now, Van Halen ended up being a way bigger influence later on, but Y&T was one of those blue-collar bands that I think people wish they could be. If you talk to any of the California bands from Los Angeles that were on the Sunset Strip, Y&T were headlining a lot of those clubs down there, and bands like Van Halen were opening up for them. Van Halen's and the Dawkins and bands like that were opening up for Y&T. So Y&T was huge in California in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. 
And then my third one from the 80s is Metallica, Master of Puppets from 1986. This is Metallica's third album. So hair metal's taken off and Metallica comes out with like loud guitars playing fast. They couldn't give two shits about what music was popular. This is the last album with Cliff Burton before his death. And kind of think about it. In the 80s, it's either you're like leather denim from the UK or you're basically spandex out of LA. That rhymed. I didn't mean that to happen, but whatever. Metallica took their cue from like hardcore punk, right? Sped up the metal roots a little bit. The lyrics dealt with issues like politics and death and morality instead of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This album, Master of Puppets, which is my favorite, is a good mix of metal, melody, aggression. Every thrash band you can think of is probably crediting Metallica for their genre of music. And a lot of them say Master of Puppets is their favorite Metallica album. If you haven't heard Battery, if you haven't heard Master of Puppets or Welcome Home Sanitarium, you're missing out because Metallica is the way to go. There's no doubt. Do it. 
Then my first female record is from the 80s instead of the 70s. And, uh, you know, we talked about during the Women in the Rock episode, we talked about Chrissy Hine a little bit. And I wanted to recommend Learning to Crawl from 1984 by The Pretenders. So basically what happens at this point is they're on there, I think Learning to Crawl is like their fourth album maybe. And the original guitar player, whose name is James Honeymoon Scott, he's called into a meeting in 1982 and is told that they're going to fire the bassist, whose name is Pete Farndon. Honeymoon Scott says, look, I'm quitting the band if you fire the bassist. They're like, look, we got to fire the bassist because he's off the rails. Homie does too many drugs, blah, 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 blah. So they come in, they fire him. Honeymoon Scott, two days later, dies of a cocaine overdose. The guy that they kicked out for drugs dies a year later of a heroin overdose. (laughs) So they get a new bass player, new guitar player, and release Learning to Crawl. And every emotion they kind of had about that situation ends up on the album. Uh, This thing, Back on the Chain Gang, Middle of the Road, are the two biggest songs on the album. But if you haven't heard Learning to Crawl by The Pretenders, I think it's well worth the whatever 45 minutes it is uh, of a listen, for sure. Uh, I would like to adopt the name Hollywood Honeymoon from now on. (laughs) Uh, I've been on a couple of honeymoons. How cool would that be? Hollywood honeymoon, (laughs) the latest host of the grown up rock podcast. Yeah. All right. So I got no problem with the pretenders and Chrissy Hine, obviously influential. So that's a good choice. Metallica master of puppets. I feel like master of puppets is probably their first real complete record. And so, yeah, that's absolutely a must-have. I love Kill 'Em All, and Kill 'Em All was my first Metallica record from the very beginning. But 
you know, it took Kill 'em All and Ride the Lightning to get to Master of Puppets. And so I think that that probably has had the most impact on a lot of great bands later on. And so, yeah, that's, that's a perfect building block. Y&T is Y&T, like I said earlier. They've influenced so many bands and so many musicians in California. I wish it would have gotten bigger, but hey, we got great music, so uh, I'm good with that. And then Iron Maiden's Power Slave. You know, that's an interesting choice. I love Power Slave. I was a huge Killers fan as well. So I got no issues with handing that over to some kid and saying, listen to this one first. It's okay with me. I might go peace of mind first, but six and one half dozen the other. It's all good stuff. So that's a great selection of records from the 80s. Certainly, you've covered a lot of bases there. So cool. All right. So it's time for me to move on to my selection from the 80s. It's going to be pretty popular picks, but I'll give you my my thought process on this. So I'm going to start out with ACDC's Back in Black. Obviously, what the biggest selling hard rock record of all time, I think. It's just an amazing record from start to finish, a perfect record. ACDC has to be part of the building blocks of rock. And you could go the Bon Scott era. You could go with Highway to Hell or Power Ridge or something like that. But I think Back in Black is probably, I mean, that's their creme de la creme, right? Sure, some of it may be fatigued at this point, but remember, you're handing this record over to some young kid who's not familiar with ACDC and saying, listen to this. I think that record's a complete package, and it's going to cement getting that kid into rock and roll. So ACDC Back in Black from 1980 for me. Now we move on to Def Leppard and Pyromania from 1983. I think Pyromania was the building block of what became melodic hard rock with huge vocals. Bands like Bon Jovi and everybody after them. I mean, this is the start of all that. These melodic, huge background vocals and these catchy hooks, but still with a nice, crisp, heavy guitar in there. You know, there's nothing more I can say about Def Leppard and Pyromania other than the fact that I got Mutt Lang doing Back in Black and Def Leppard's Pyromania. So Mutt Lang appears twice in the 1980s for Building Blocks of Rock. But what are you going to do? To me, they're perfect records. Pyromania and Back in Black both are Desert Island records for me, without a doubt. Then I felt like, look, I really need to cover the Sunset Strip in the 80s because mid to late 80s, Sunset Strip was all the rage. And so I wanted to cover that kind of turning point for hard rock and metal. Now, I could have gone with Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil, but Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil came out in 83. And I thought it was more important to cover Def Leppard's Pyromania as part of the building block for what became melodic hard rock. So I'm going to hit you with Rats Out of the Cellar. I think the songs on there are so damn strong, I have no problem giving some kid a rat out of the cellar record and saying, this is what rock and roll looked like in 1984. And here's great songs to go along with that look. And this is what was happening out on the sunset strip. So 
Those are my three from the 80s. Yeah, I'll go backwards. So Rat, to me, I think for the hair metal that grew out of it, they were looking at Rat going, all right, you can have a guitar stud and possibly even two guitar studs, not have to have Pavarotti as a singer and make it. You don't even got to look good because I'm not sure they look good, right? So I think they made it seem doable. Def Leppard, I think if it's not for them having huge hits that put these type of melodic songs on the charts, you probably don't get record companies trying to go get the next Def Leppard, right? And I think they kind of showed, yeah, if you got a good singer, man, you can do a lot, but you can just look good and you could probably do a lot as long as your songs are halfway decent. And then the more I listen to ACDC, and I know we're going to get some hate mail on this. You can just send it to me directly if you want. The fuck is Sonny Pony? But I'll tell you, after Back in Black, there's maybe six ACDC songs I care about. Everything I listen to is either Back in Black or before. There is something that changes for me at those, the I salute you, those about the rock. Something changes with the feel. It's either like it doesn't get any growth to it. I'm not exactly sure what it is. But it's like if I never hear except for five or six of those songs, like I said, in the next 10 albums, I'm fine with it as long as I got back in black and before that. So I don't know what it is. You you like the last 10 albums? Like I could give two shits. I do like a lot of ACDC. I understand what you're saying. And ACDC isn't a band that grows. It is what it is. So there's enough catalog where you can visit everything from for those about to rock on back and be happy. There's a lot of stuff early on that I didn't care that much about from the Bon Scott era. There's definitely stuff within the Brian Johnson era that I don't care about. So I pick the ones that I like and I stick with them. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the last several albums that I like, and they're getting ready to release another new album. And so, you know, you don't have to overthink it. It is what it is. They're not going to recreate the wheel. You either like it or you don't like it. For me, does it have a good groove? Does it have a good, uh, you know, riff? I mean, that's really what ACDC is for me. So that's just how I feel about it. Uh, I feel like, you know, going back to the Def Leppard, not only melodic hard rock did this influence, but I think it influenced a lot of people from a studio standpoint. The way they layered these vocals and overproduced, you know, some people say it's overproduced, maybe, but damn, I mean, (laughs) they created a standard in the studio in terms of sonically how records sound for sure. And and a lot of that I'm sure was Mutt Lang, but they were definitely the vessel that carried that. So yeah, I'm confident and comfortable with my three from the eighties. Yeah. They're great picks. Hell, two of them are diamond albums. There you go. Yeah. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. All right, so we're going to take a break real quick from tonight's episode and just tell folks, hey, we would appreciate it if you guys came on over to our Facebook page and liked our Facebook page. Maybe join the Loud Minority Facebook group. It's called the Grown Up Rock Loud Minority, where we talk about the podcast, talk about episodes, 
talk about some ideas for upcoming episodes. We discuss all kinds of rock and roll and things like that. I share some videos of new bands and get your opinions on them, things like that. It's free. Just ask to join. It's a private Facebook group. That way you can kind of be yourself and be free to discuss openly without getting nailed by somebody for uh, stuff we say. Uh, We keep it politics free, so there's no politics. It's only about music. So there you go. Come on over to the Grown Up Rock Loud Minority Facebook group and join up. That's it. Back to our discussion. Okay, so I can tell you my three 90s bands are not politic-free, uh, <laughs> on purpose almost. So the first one I want to talk about is Corn. So their self-titled album came out in 1994, and I know my buddy Steven here doesn't really care about new metal, but Corn is often credited as the band that started that genre. Their sound like took this more aggressive place versus what grunge was doing at the time. Like the melodies got angrier versus depressing but the lyric topics basically stayed the same. So it seemed like a lot more like rap and almost yelling to where the Slipknots and the Machine Heads and the Sepulturas and Limp Biscuits, like they continually say that this first album was a major influence of what their sound ended up being. Now, all that being said, don't get me wrong. I like new metal when it comes to Disturbed and Godsmack. I basically don't listen to any of these other bands. But uh, like I said, Steve and I agreed to talk about bands that matter, right? And I'll tell you on this album, like Blind and Clown are probably the two songs I listen to every once in a while. But this whole aggression and, you know, instead of being grunge depressed and jump off a bridge and instead go hurt somebody, it it really weird how it grew to that fairly quickly, but uh, it did. My second 90s band is Rage Against the Machine, again, self-titled 1992 There is something about Tom Morello's guitar playing and tone that like bridges this gap between, you know, I'm a guitar player and I'm an entertainer and like activism. Like the guitar tone for me sometimes like sounds like a police siren that's like running through your heart kind of thing. It's really weird. I I don't really know how to explain it.
says he's a huge Kiss fan and that Ace is his guy. I don't really hear much of Ace in his guitar playing. Maybe it's hard to hear with all the revolution, you know, feeling the music. I don't know. Killing in the Name, you know, that first song off that first album took on historical racism and most likely is never more relevant than what's going on today. So some of the people believe that Rage Against the Machine kind of introduced the world to this aggressive like rap rock. The messaging, the energy is undeniable. The music, not exactly my bag, to be, to be honest. That being said, my favorite songs on this album were Bomb Track and Killing in the Name. And the music gave a voice to a lot of bands in later years, bands like System of a Down and some of these guys that wanted to be aggressive, maybe didn't have the singing chops of the 80s bands and were almost brought a little more punk to the game with the uh, kind of aggressive corn feel almost. So uh, kind of a weird mix. And then my third one from the 90s is Soundgarden, Bad Motor Finger from 1991. Uh, you know, Soundgarden was one of the Soundgarden was one of the big bands of the grunge era. A uh, mix of punk, a mix of metal, a mix of progressive rock, and just plain Black Sabbath sludge. You think Black Sabbath is sludge? Good Lord. You think Soundgarden took Black Sabbath and like reduced it by 20%. Like it's really weird time signatures, alternate tuning, complicated themes, like but with all that, Soundgarden for me is like one of the more listenable grunge bands because it kind of bridged what my hair metal was to what Rocky grunge kind of became. And I think this is why Soundgarden was one of the first bands to sign with a major label because Bad Motorfinger had songs on it that showed record companies that grunge bands could hit the charts because Outshined is an awesome song. I love Jesus Christ Posed. I love Rusty Cage. And good Lord, rest in peace, but Chris Cornell's vocals on this album give me the chills. The guy 
He just somehow, all the aggression, all the pain, anything he was feeling about the lyrics really came out in this like soulful, painful, aggressive vocal. Really hard to explain if you haven't heard the songs, but uh, Soundgarden was definitely something that kind of got grunge going. And then my second female artist of a band that I would recommend actually comes from 2003, and it's uh, the album called Fallen by Evanescence. And this is Amy Lee singing. We talked about Amy Lee in the Women Rock episode a little bit. This is the album that has My Immortal and Bring Me to Life. They won a couple of Grammys. I did not know this album sold 7 million copies in the U.S. It's seven times platinum. I had no idea. It's really cool to have a woman-fronted band sell that many copies. I could tell you that. That's awesome. And I'm glad it was Amy Lee because she seems really cool and she's a great singer. So there's nothing wrong with that. So that's my four from the 90s and beyond. Yeah, that Evanescent record is an excellent pick on your part. I've never been a huge Evanescent fan. I respect Amy Lee. I think she's fantastically talented. I like some of their music. And if you're going to have a record, this is the record to have. But I got to see them live last year, and I thought they were fantastic. That was the first time I'd seen them live. And I know they've had a couple of member changes, but let's face it, it's basically Amy's band anyway. So, yeah, that's a fantastic pick on your part. Soundgarden, Bad Motor Finger. When we're talking about the 90s, you got to go there. You got to go there with some of this stuff. And really, I mean, it's not on either of our list, but really Nirvana, Nevermind, should be on the list somewhere because obviously that album was influential in some way, shape, or form to the music industry. So yeah, Soundgarden, it's all good. That's an excellent album. I like Soundgarden a lot. I think they were definitely that mixture of what you said, grunge with the sludgy, almost Black Sabbath-y uh, riffing and things like that. Rage Against the Machine, I absolutely love. I liked my funk metal. Uh, and so I liked the heavy guitar with that kind of funky groove. And Rage Against the Machine was fantastic. And then they added the rapping on top. And I've never considered myself a big rap fan one way or another, but, you know, I could understand his lyrics and I could understand what he was rapping about. And so it was easier for me to listen to. I'm a much bigger Rage Against the Machine fan than Sonny is. I like pretty much all their records. I own pretty much all their records. And from time to time, I listen to some of those records. And in fact, Tom Morello was in a band before Rage Against the Machine called Locked Up, which was basically, they had a singer, but it was basically like a funky metal band. So and they put out one record. I remember this song called Punch Drunk that was on the record. It was excellent. And then Corn self-titled, absolutely influential. They're not really my can of corn, but <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> nice. <laughs> They're not necessarily my can of corn, but yeah, I get it. I understand. I like some of their stuff. It's not like I can't listen to any of their stuff. I do own this self-titled record. Yeah, it's all right. I get where that comes from. So, all right. So it's time for me to move into the 90s. There's one album in here, well, there's two albums in here that I listen to still today that I like quite a bit, and then there's a couple of albums that 
again, I own, but I don't necessarily listen to often. So I'll start off with this one. Alice in Chains facelift. It's the first Alice in Chains. And for me, it bridged the gap between 80s hard rock and what was becoming the grunge movement. Some of those songs are straight ahead. And some of those songs are definitely getting a little bit different with both Lane and um, Jerry Cantrell doing the vocals at the same time. But there's some great material on this record. I've talked about how much I love CSRO and We All Die Young. Man in the Box goes without saying, but I like some of the deeper cuts like Sunshine. There's just some good material on that Alice in Chains record that was released in 1990. Let's talk about Nine Inch Nails. Nine Inch Nails definitely sparked a revolution in the music industry for what was techno, industrial rock, whatever you want to call it. There were a slew of bands, including bands like Marilyn Manson and even really some of the like corn and stuff like that got into Nine Inch Nails. So, Nine Inch Nails Downward Spiral in 1994. It's hit or miss for me. I like a few tunes on it. Some stuff I don't like on it. I actually prefer Nine Inch Nails Pretty Hate Machine more than Downward Spiral. But Pretty Hate Machine was really coming on the cusp of their sort of dance, like techno dance music stuff. Nine Inch Nails is hit or miss for me. I like Trent Reznor. I think he's talented. I've heard they're awesome live. I've actually never seen them live. And so I felt like you had to recognize Downward Spiral as part of that revolution of industrial rock and roll and hand somebody that. Last but not least, Pantera. Vulgar display of power. Pantera for me... If we were doing a big four of thrash, metal, hard rock, how, whatever you want to call it, Pantera would be in that big four for me, simply because I like them better than Slayer. I'm not a huge Slayer fan, but Pantera I like quite a bit. Vulgar display of power. I think a lot of people go to that record and recognize that record. The very next record that they released, Far Beyond Driven, I think debuted at number one, if I remember correctly, on Billboard. So Vulgar Display of Power kind of set that up for them. And there's no doubt Pantera became a huge band. Dimebag became an icon. And so, you know, I think that you definitely got to recognize Pantera as one of those building blocks of rock, especially in that genre of music. Uh, and besides that, Sonny R.A. talked about Metallica. Metallica would have been my first choice, but since Sonny covered that, I felt like I wanted to go to Pantera uh, rather than a Megadeth or an Anthrax or a Slayer. I can't do Slayer. I can't do it. Sorry. And then my last female artist that I'm going to cover in 2015, and this is Sonny and I just kind of switching out because obviously Sonny is the person responsible for getting me into this female artist, and I'm talking about Hailstorm. Now, why I would make sure that a Hailstorm CD was in this stack to give somebody is because I think that not only is their music great, Lizzie's great, but she's a good flag carrier for rock and roll. She recognizes all the stuff that came before her, whether it was the Runaways and the female rock, but she also recognizes that 80s rock like the Cinderella's and 
uh, the DOs and artists like that. And so she does a really good job for carrying that flag of rock and roll in the past. I absolutely love the record Into the Wildlife released in 2015. It's got some great material on it. So I would put that in the stack to hand somebody. And so now I feel like I've featured a good variety of music to turn over to that 15 or 16 year old that doesn't know a whole lot about rock and roll. So there you go. Yeah. Some great picks, Alice in Chains. I agree. You know, it was for me too. It was a good bridge between hair metal and what Jerry was doing in grunge. And uh, there was no doubt that Alice in Chains was always listenable to me. It didn't feel like Nirvana to me. It felt like a different brand of music. Nine Inch Nails, for some reason, every time I hear the name, I think industrial music. I don't know why, right? It's, uh, it's, like, the, it's like Depeche Mode in metal. I don't, I don't know. It's always been a little weird to me. I've never gotten into it, uh, but I haven't heard it in a long time, so maybe I would feel different about it now. But that's exactly why it's there, because it is industrial. You, hear, you think about industrial metal and industrial rock, you think about Nine Inch Nails, and that's exactly why it's there. Yeah. And then Pantera, there's no doubt Dimebag's an icon, was an icon. The aggression, just, again, the music got angry, right? And I'll tell you, honestly, I actually like the angry more than I like the depression. So if I had my choice between like Pantera and Nirvana, give me Pantera all day. Because at least it gets your heart pumping a little bit, where Nirvana always seemed to depress me a little bit. And that's why I'm... On Alice in Chains, I'm off and on Soundgarden because at times Soundgarden can get really depressing. I guess at times Alice in Chains can too, but for whatever reason, what Pantera was doing seemed to go like want to make you punch people, which that's not all bad. There's times for that. There's no doubt about that. In the red corner, yes, he may sound drunk, but he's really not Sonny Hollywood let the battle begin. And then on the hailstorm thing, I will tell you that if you don't want to take the time to go listen to Into the Wildlife, I'll tell you, go listen to three songs. I'll tell you, go listen to Amen because Amen is like a, an anthem and you'll understand it's a simple anthem. Go listen to What Sober Couldn't Say and I guarantee you that either you or somebody very close to you has gone through what she's talking about and what Sober Couldn't Say because the song is all about, look, I want to say something to you, but like, I can't say it's over. So now that I'm a little hammered, let me tell you, I had a lot of problems with you people, right? <laughs> and she kind of, she kind of goes there a little bit. I got a lot of problems with you people. <laughs> now you're going to hear about it. And then the third song is apocalyptic. And the reason I bring that third song up is, so you got a bunch of songs on wildlife that are a little more serious. You got a bunch of songs that are a lot more personal. And then you have lyrics like, I wear my nine-inch heels when we go to bed. I paint the color of my lips blood red. I get so animal like never before. So you press play and I'll hit record. I'll give you one last night, so make it twisted. Give you one last shot. Go on and hit it. Give you one last time to make me miss it. Baby love me apocalyptic.
So that's a lot more flirty and fun. And that's what I love about Hillstorm. It's kind of got both of the sides instead of all of it being sex, drugs, and rock and roll. There's a little bit of serious and it's got a female vocal and she's attractive and that doesn't hurt. Yeah, it's all good stuff for sure. It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. All right, so let's get to Kiss. So for the historic moment, I figured we'd go with bands that influence Kiss. So both Paul and Gene have shared that Alice Cooper, New York Dolls, the Beatles, the Yardbirds were influences that impacted their songwriting. Gene has even said, and I quote, I've ripped off so many English riffs. If the British influence wasn't there, we wouldn't be here. Rock and Roll All Night is a direct bastard child of Slade's Mama, We're All Crazy Now. And then in his book, he said about Slade, we liked the way they connected with the crowd and the way they wrote anthems. We wanted the same energy and the same irresistible simplicity. So most likely, if you listen to this podcast, you know that Come On, Feel the Noise and Mama, We're All Crazy Now, both covered by Quiet Riot, making them huge hits, were originally written and performed by Slade. But the highest charting song for Slade in the early 70s, which got to number 68, was on the same album as Mama, We're All Crazy Now, which was called Slade, with a question mark. Here is Goodbye to Jane.
Yeah, okay. So I have to admit, I was never a Slade fan. I'd heard so much about Slade for so long about many of the bands I loved, and Slade was their influence. So I went to Slade a couple of times in the 80s and was like, I don't get it. I don't like it. I don't get it. No. (laughs) No. Big no. But today, I went and listened to this tune because I had no clue about this song. And it comes uh, where I found this song was on this big greatest hits thing on Spotify. I like this song. I actually like this song. And in fact, this song reminds me of like the band The Sweet, uh, which is another influential band that we didn't talk about. You know, there's tons of influential bands and we could spend weeks on all the stuff to hand over to some kid at 16. But when you're doing a podcast and you only got a little over an hour, you got to make it quick. So we had to streamline it. But yeah, I dig this tune, and uh, in fact, it may make me go and check out a little more Slade. Yeah, and that was the whole point, right? So I've I've said it before, I don't check out Motown if it's not some of the hair metal bands that are doing Motown covers, right? So same thing, there is something that the 80s bands saw with Slate, with Sweet, with some of these bands that most people didn't hear from the UK that may have had a hit or two, but most people didn't know what it was and it needed to be metaled up and guitared up just a little to make it a little more fuller, a little more almost, I don't know, listenable because sometimes it gets very honky tonk and it kind of loses me and it feels old. I guess they moderned it up for the time and that's kind of like mama, we're all crazy now. Quiet Riot killed that song. You listen to Slade version, you're like, eh. I kind of like what Quiet Riot did with that song. So they they knew something. Yeah, no doubt. So here's an interesting little fun thing for anybody that's listening to this podcast. Go to our Facebook page. What 10 albums do you hand a young kid and say, these are the building blocks of rock. Go listen to that. Don't pick the same band. Don't pick the same year, but pick 10 records. Because there are any number of records we could have talked about. Could have talked about Queen. Could have talked about The Sweet. Could have talked about More Slade. Could have talked about... We didn't even cover any of the glam rock. We didn't talk about Bowie or T-Rex or Poison or any of these artists, you know, that uh, may have influenced somebody. And yes, Poison did influence some bands that came much later, don't think they didn't. So something that could uh, be a good uh, source of conversation, don't you think? I tried some of that. So I will tell you honestly, I went and listened to the New York Dolls and I listened to four Bowie albums. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to pick something. You can send your hate mail to me. (laughs) I didn't like any of it. I did not like one single song I heard out of 25 New York Dolls songs and out of 50 Bowie songs. And I'm just like, really? This influenced people? Okay, whatever. <laughs> right? So I don't know why. My favorite Bowie song is still China Girl. Maybe it was because of the 80s. I don't know. But I couldn't handle any of that 70s stuff. There's a lot of Bowie stuff that I like. I don't like it all. Bowie's definitely somebody that I dig quite a bit of like the greatest hits and things like that from. The New York Dolls, I'm with you. I tried to get into the New York Dolls as well, and I couldn't do it. I think that they were just, it was timing. 
So they came along at a time that people were looking for something new and they dug what they heard. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I'm with you there. No New York dolls for me either. Yeah. And it scares me for my kids, right? Because that means my kids are looking at my music going, really, dad, come on. That's not good. I can't listen to that. And they're talking about like Kiss, right? So I'm like, really? How can you not like this? This is much better than the marshmallow guy you're listening to. You know, that kind of thing. But uh, maybe it's, it's gotta be part age, part time and part what we grew up with. I don't get Cardi B. I don't understand. I get Bruno Mars because it sounds like James Brown, but I don't get Cardi B. But that's what's good about giving a variety. And that's part of why we built these building blocks of rock to give them a variety of stuff and pull from different eras and see if something hits. And I would take that approach with any kid. You know, take a little bit of this and a little bit of this and see if you like it. Hopefully some of it takes. Somebody out there got a lot of rock and roll going forward. Can't be just us. Or you can be like Danny and he basically stopped in 94 and hasn't listened to anything else. <laughs> <laughs> we will get there, people. We will get there. Rock and roll will survive. Hang on to hope, baby. Nobody wants to listen to WAP for the rest of their life. <laughs> oh, good Lord. But that's a nice little episode. Uh, just want to thank everybody for listening and for connecting and giving us feedback. I uh, really appreciate it. Yep, absolutely. Thanks to each and every one of you guys. We do appreciate you guys. We appreciate the feedback. We appreciate the listeners. And hopefully we're entertaining you in some way, shape, or form. We will talk to you guys next week. Hopefully. See ya. Later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.